Oh, it's the best advice I ever got. One time I was serving coffee to this woman when I was, my college job was at Starbucks and I was serving college to this woman who was going, but she was getting her graduate degree and she was like in her forties or something like late forties. She's like a business lady. She's like, well, what are you going to do? And I was like, but I was like, kind of rattling all of these things off. And I was like, I don't really know. And I'm kind of freaking out. And she just like, and I was like, I kind of just want to keep traveling and like work seasonally. And she just like looked at me and she's like, Hey, the 40 hour work week will always be there. And I was just like, Oh my God. Like it changed everything. That perspective. This is the Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle. We take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. I'm here with Maddie Cobb. How are you doing today, Maddie? I'm doing great. And over here in cold Vermont. <laughs> yeah. How, uh, how's the temperature over there today? It's not bad. It's like what they call, like, I just saw it online today. It's like fool's spring. So it's like in the twenties, which is like a little bit balmy compared to the rest of the winter, <laughs> but there's like definitely a top secret blizzard around the corner. <laughs> is, there, is there always a top secret blizzard in Vermont? Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> Especially in like March when you start to get your hopes up, there's like a solid two to three foot dump coming. <laughs> yeah. I I'm in Colorado and it's, it's been sunny and super nice for the last, I don't know, like two weeks maybe. And uh, I'm like, Oh yeah, this is, this is summer. Right. And then I see the locals looking at me like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. And I, I can feel, you know, it's in the air. There's, it's about to, it's about to elbow drop us from the sky. Bunch of snow. Yeah, it's not the worst news though. Spring is tough in Vermont, so I'd rather be like skiing, skiing until summer than having just like a gross mud season. Right, right. So, what are you doing now? I know you're teaching. Tell me a little bit about what what's going on for you now. Yeah, I live in um, nor- the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, which is uh, these like three counties in the northeastern part of Vermont. It's the most rural uh, part of Vermont. Uh, I live up there on this like undeveloped piece of land uh, that I myself and uh, my partner at the time three years ago we put up a year erected a year like carved a little hole in the woods and put up a year. I live there by myself with my dog now and it's completely off the grid. I use like a tiny little solar panel uh, for some lights occasionally when there's sun. (laughs) Um, And I teach, uh, I teach in a high school there and I'm a high school French teacher primarily, but I also created a course called She Persists, which is studying uh, women in non-traditional who live like non-traditional lifestyles. And then I have also started the like outing, the outing club, which is like an outdoors club for my, my students up in the Northeast kingdom as well. Very cool. Yeah. I've, I've had some conversation with outings clubs uh, for colleges recently trying to push the old magazine to them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I've been trying to push you. uh, So your partner in crime, Kelly, right? Yeah. She sent me a bunch. She very so kindly sent me a bunch of your magazines 
to like use in my class. And I've been pushing that on kids pretty hard too, especially like seniors, like, Hey, there's like another way to do things. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Preaching the good word. <laughs> yes, exactly. So tell me about the, she persists and what, what some of the the lessons or what, what the class looks like. Oh my God. She persists is like my, I can't even believe like, so I'm like a novice teacher. This is my third school year teaching. And I got to prototype this in a thing. We, we have like this mini semester in the middle of the winter and we get to teachers kind of get to invent any course they want. And then students get to sign up and they're two, it's like a two to three week uh, mini semester. And I just like off the cuff invented this class where I, like, I pretty much just was like, these kids are in rural Vermont and they have no idea what the world has to offer them. And I have all these really cool, particularly women in my life. And the girls where I live like really need some female um what is the word for it people to look up to i'm like forgetting my word some female awesomeness yeah yeah exactly they just need some female awesomeness and need like some some inspiration so the format of the class last winter was just i am going to get these girls to interview in person and through skype as many cool hardcore women i know um, so I just had like a bunch of women from trail professional trail crews come in. I had like my friend who's a helicopter pilot in the Navy and my sister-in-law who's like this big dog in finance, like all these women just kind of in male dominated careers, um, like getting interviewed. And then it just went so well. The girls did a, um, the students did a, like a radio journal, and it was just like incredibly powerful stuff. They interviewed each other. We practiced like interviewing skills and stuff like that too. The hard skills they were learning was really like networking skills and interviewing skills. Um, and then it went so well that I proposed it as a course um, and it got picked up. So then this year was my first year running it as a full semester course. So it's like two separate semesters. And then as our end product, so it's not like a classic class. Like I'm not standing up and lecturing and kids are taking quizzes. Um, the end product is actually a zine. Um, so like a handmade magazine. I know you seasonals are familiar with zines, but some people don't know what those are. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so now it's just a zine and it's been so cool. Like they develop this, this semester has been super powerful. Last semester was like incredible. Like they developed questions all on their own and they just deep dive into some research right now. Their question is, what is it to be a non-traditional woman? Um, and it's like seven different kids deep diving into their own like angles. One girl's like looking at right, the right girl movement. Uh, one girl's looking at how disability affects women who want to be non-traditional. Um, just a lot of really cool intersections of gender and everything else. Um, and yeah, they make a zine and then we send it out everywhere. So if anyone who listens to this podcast wants a zine, it is like so powerful to see these girls addressing envelopes and stuffing them and sending them out. Cause they can't believe that like someone wants to just see something they've done and they do phenomenal work <laughs> where where can people get it if they want a copy uh they can i guess we could get my contact information uh and on this and they can just email me personally um and i can just with their address and we can mail it to them okay great yeah we can put that in the notes afterwards that'd be great what are some of your favorite subjects in that class to go over oh man well i mean like i don't it's not like um it's hard to, so there's like a thing in teaching right now called project-based learning. Um, and the concept of project-based learning is that students are actually solving or diving into a real live 
like topic and issue. So like they're diving into research and doing rigorous research and I'm making sure that they are, but like at the end of the day, they're actually like making a real thing, which is a zine. They're not writing me a paper, you know, I'm not like giving a quiz. So, I mean, the topics, they discover them on their own. So I've been really moved by my one student. She has a hearing disability. She's, she's um, almost hundred percent deaf and she it's been really moving seeing her studying like all these women throughout history and who are currently just like making waves who are disabled and like, kind of like not, not only it's not just like being like, Hey, you need to respect disabled people, but they're also like just women living their lives as they want to live. Um, and it's just been powerful seeing her, seeing her like, see that that's just it's interesting with these interviews. So we'll be interviewing women too this semester, but you just, like one of the coolest things was uh, during the prototype class, we had just finished interviewing my friend who's a helicopter pilot. And it was after a couple of days of interviewing a bunch of other really awesome women. And my one girl, my one student just like looked at me and I could tell she was like a little bit like riled up. And I didn't know if it was a good or bad thing. She kind of was like pacing back and forth and like, I was shaking her head and I was like, Hey, like, what's up? Like, are, are you okay? And she just looked at me and she's like, Miss Cobb, like, I could be a helicopter pilot if I wanted to. And she was like, I just can't even believe that. I was like, yeah, you totally could. <laughs> yeah, like you could. So it's like, it's um, it's interesting because where I live and where I teach is rural poverty. Our school is like roughly 40% free reduced lunch, which is an indicator of like how many students like qualify for like they don't, their only hot meal a lot of times is served at school. Um, and because it's so rural, um, the jobs that are available that actually pay decently are generally like masculine jobs. So you can like be a logger with your uncle, you can be a mechanic, you can be a welder. And it's not, they're not saying that girls can't, but it's just like not the norm for these girls like to take on this job. So the job at the one gas station is kind of coveted. Like there's not that many jobs for women to be able to do, to do in these communities. So it's like when they start realizing that they can do like anything, like, cause they don't know that cause they're so isolated. So when they start realizing there's all these opportunities and there's women in the world who actually want to help other girls, like get to where they currently are, um, that you kind of like can't stop them. Like all of a sudden they start dreaming and that's what I need to happen, you know? Yeah. It sounds like it's, it's working really well. <laughs> Hopefully. I mean, yeah, we'll see in a couple of years if any of them have like taken off, but it does, it's, it's really powerful stuff. Like I've, there's been some goosebump moments for sure for me, just being like, this is like taking on a life of its own. I can't even believe I'm lucky enough to be part of it, you know? Yeah. And how, how have the parents uh, reacted Oh, man. Yeah. After so for the prototype one with that mini semester, it it culminates in an exhibition night. And where I am, if anyone (laughs) listens to your podcast and is from Vermont, they're going to be very familiar with uh, the stereotypes of the Northeast Kingdom. It's kind of a special little part of Vermont. I think a lot when a lot of people think of Vermont, they think of like the ski resorts and hippies and Bernie, <laughs> which aren't wrong. But where I live is it's a very blue collar, um, redneck uh, place, and people kind of keep to themselves and they're not one to talk to anyone, particularly if they don't know you. And that includes teachers. Um, and when they came in for exhibition night, particularly mothers, but even dads came up to me and were like, "My daughter." 
when she comes home from school, she's like your classic teenager. I'd ask her how her day was to get a one word answer. But she's like, for these past two weeks, she has just been coming home. She, all she can talk about is this class and like talk about the women that she got to interview and just like how exciting it was to see all these women doing these like super cool things. So when you have a parent in a place where they like parents don't often like to like don't really reach out that often. Um, and they're coming up to me like on repeat, just saying the same thing, like that their kid just like had such an amazing experience in that class. Um, yeah, the feedback was, was yeah, goose, goosebump inducing as well. That is so cool. Yeah. And you know what? The people interviewed too, like they're all my friends, right? So my friend who's like a surgeon, my, like the, like I said, like the helicopter pilot, like the, um, some of my friends who are farmers, like they, when we talked after just like a debrief and like for me to say thank you, they were just like, that was incredible. Like that was incredible. Like doing that. So it was like all around good feels, you know? <laughs> to me, this is sort of like the sending the elevator back down. Like, from what you sent me of what you've done before, like you've done a ton of awesome stuff and now you're showing and like bringing that idea to this rural area in Vermont to these, these girls, like you said, that don't have a lot of options like in their face. Tell me a little bit, like, let's go back to the beginning and look at, you know, how all this came about and all the different awesome things you've done in your life. Oh yeah. Well, it's actually pretty funny. So I'm from like suburban New Jersey. Um, and my mom always said that, (laughs) um, we, and I'd never gone camping ever until, um, well, we'll get there. But my mom, the reason we'd never gone camping is because my mom said, if there's no place to plug in a hair dryer, um, she wouldn't go. And, um, I have four brothers and I grew up, my parents are, I grew up with wonderful parents who are still alive and fantastic and awesome brothers. But I would say that I grew up in an extremely, um, gendered, household um my mom would call things pink jobs and blue jobs um so i would like beg to mow the lawn and my Uh, brothers would be like let her mow the lawn like we don't want to mow the lawn (laughs) you know what i mean um and my mom would be like no and then you know after my brothers ate dinner like me and my mom would do the dishes and my brothers would go play like video games I would be like, this is ridiculous, but I wouldn't go on strike because then it meant just my mom was doing the dishes and I felt bad. You know what I mean? Um, So the the road to like uh, manual labor was a, was a funny one, but um, I think I just always had a desire to like get outside. Um, And I was, I was like a high level soccer player my whole life, you know, year round. And so I really loved being physical. Um, and being outside. Um, and then one day my friend, I was going to call, I was home for my freshman year of college and my buddy was also home. He went to college at Paul Smith's, which is a school in, um, in the Adirondack mountains in upstate New York. And, um, he came back and he's like, dude, I just did this thing. It's called professional trail crew. You guys would love it. You got to do it. And, um, and he like he was like we're in the woods all the time we're building we're like moving boulders we're using grip hoists and like I didn't even know what that shit was I just like loved it oh can I curse on this <laughs> yeah absolutely okay cool cool, cool. Yeah, you can talk <laughs> I, about whatever you want <laughs> all, right. all right I curse like a sailor so I was like I should double check okay great but um yeah and then um and I was just like and also I can be long winded so please cut me short um when, when okay. Um, and then I was just like, yes, I'm up. So like, it's super physical and stuff. I just needed something new in my life. I didn't want to be in, in Philadelphia in the summer. That would just be too much. Um, and I signed up and like, got this call being like, Hey, like your resume looks good. 
where like 200 people applied to this job and you know it's a trail crew there's not that many openings every year so but I had that friend so I guess he put in a good word and I was just like yeah and I totally bullshitted like (laughs) like he didn't ask if I had gone camping before because I think you would just like assume if someone applies for a backcountry trail crew they've gone camping (laughs) um and I was just like yeah totally and um and I was just like, I'm super stoked on this. And he was like, well, tell me a reason why I really should hire you. And I was like, I was like, dude, like, honestly, if I have to be in the city during the summer, I'm probably going to kill myself. Like, that would be so horrible. And I, and I was just like, I'm just like ready to kill it. And I got hired on. I like, arrived to my first day in the Adirondacks with like, with like, like wide leg blue jeans. Like, I thought that that was what you would wear, like workwear. Because <laughs> apparently I'd only watched like 1950s films. <laughs> like, I gotta give my dungarees. <laughs> and um, like a handheld flashlight. And they just like looked at me and were like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then I spent the rest of that season, which was one of the coldest summers on record in the Adirondacks. Um getting the shit kicked out of me like physically with the work I mean I was athletic but we were carrying 120 pound packs up and over high peaks moving boulders all day working 12 16 hour days we're getting rained on getting snowed on you know what I mean and um getting your first year man getting just shit on by the upper year man <laughs> um and some friendly and not some friendly hazing moments um and I just like that was the first seasonal job I ever had. And I just was like, uh, even though I was almost miserable every single day, I just like fell in love with seasonal work. And, and then that's just got me in the ring. You know, what happens when you start working seasonally is you meet other people who work seasonally and you get kind of tipped somewhere to go next. And that was just like step one, you know? And how old were you in that first season? 19, 19 or 20. Yeah. Young one. Wide eyed. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty lucky. I'm lucky I got like exposed to it so early because it, it like definitely helped form me in a way. Like I was just planning on going to law school and you know, probably living in the city my whole life. And trail crew really changed the entire direction of my life and who I am as a person. Okay, so you're thinking about going to law school and you were working <laughs> as a trail crew. Tell me, tell me about how that sort of idea went from pretty solid to slowly or quickly fading away as you kept <laughs> doing the trail crew work. Oh man, once I found the woods, I just found myself. And I'm like a pretty wild person. I love being like around people a lot. And a city was, I love cities to this day and I love Philadelphia. It's where my heart is, but cities just like weren't good for my mental health at the end of the day. And I just felt like such a more like stable person in the woods. And then I found these bonds and on my crew that even like, I always say like, you can put me in the woods with 99% of people and I, I might not like them, but I'll never hate them. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, there are some problems you always have with some people, but like you just build and really forge some deep, meaningful relationships with people. And I think that that was what I wanted. And it just, I just started realizing that like city life, law school type of stuff, it just didn't feel as real to me anymore. And what felt really real and true were the relationships I was establishing with others, with the new relationship I was establishing with myself. And also like, Shroker taught me that I could do whatever I put my mind to, Um, especially as a young woman. Like, 
uh, especially growing up, like I was athletic and confident, but I was told forever that like, I, no matter how hard I tried, I'd never be as good as a guy. And it wasn't just directly from like my mom. That's messages that young women get um, from the world. And I realized when I went to trail crew that there was a lot of sexism in trail crew, but it was still, when it came to the divvying up work, it was completely egalitarian. And it was the first time I was in a place where I was, I was carrying a 120 pound pack and a fucking six foot four, 200 pound dude was carrying a 120 pound pack. You know, I was weighing in at like 145. <laughs> like, like there was just like, and there was like no time for excuses. It was just like, you just solve problems. And I just, yeah, I just, yeah, I just found that the world was a lot more real after, um, after that. And that, going in a more corporate way or staying in cities just wasn't actually going to be a way for me to like really find myself and find where my place is in the world. So I know what day one on the trail crew Maddie looked like. What, <laughs> what did uh, the grizzled vet after five seasons, what, what was she like? <laughs> oh my God, a wild woman. And also, right. So I started at like 19 or 20. So my last season was like, I think I was like 24 or something. You know how being a seasonal, like it's so hard to keep track of stuff because you, you do it by season. So it's not like by year. So pardon yeah. me if my numbers are the tiniest bit off, but um, yeah, I was like 23 or 24, right. My last season, I was like monster, just like completely jacked, fantastic shape confident just utterly confident myself plus you have the confidence of someone in their early 20s right like 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 your early to mid 20s that that there you haven't life hasn't really kicked you down too hard yet <laughs> so so yeah. yeah so you just like you just like fuck like i am like i can do it having like I did not take any shit because I was leading crews at that point. You know, I was leading crews, taking on really cool projects, really big projects using, I was, my forte on the trail crew was, was stonework. Um, it's a lot of times like people, you just kind of pick what you really enjoy doing and you find yourself thriving in. And so um, you could do like, we did a lot of native timber building of bridges and stuff. That's timber where you're, ch you're chopping down the tree on site. Um, and then we did some, they've been moving more and more to dimensional lumber that they dropped by um, helicopter, um, which is a bummer because it's like way less pretty, but it makes sense because it lasts a bit longer. Um, but yeah, I just like fell in love with rock work. So I was just like walking around four to like six months a year with a 20 pound rock bar in my hand at all times. You know what I mean? Like, see, and I, yeah, just like, just like jacked telling people what to do all the time. Um, really comfortable being a leader, really loving being a leader. I, I really like taking care of a crew creating community on a crew, but also like holding people accountable for a high quality of work. The Adirondack Mountain Club trail crew, um, does extremely high quality work. And, um, I would say from traveling the world, hiking trail trails all around the United States, um, it's kind of unparalleled in the, the quality other than if you look to some national park service crews and the Appalachian Mountain Club, which is like our cousin crew in the white mountains. Um, they're specifically their white mountain crew, but, uh, yeah, it just was like this grizzled woman, like ready for the next huge challenge, which is what led me into hot shouting, um, in wildland fire. Cause I, you do kind of outgrow trail crew, professional trail crews, um, working on public lands kind of top out with, 
uh, paychecks unless you go federal, unless you go to the National Park Service. And when you go federal, the whole dynamic kind of changed. And what I loved about Trailcar, I loved the work because it taught me a lot about myself. But like at the end of the day, I wasn't someone who like was like, I want to build trails the rest of my life. You know, I was more like, I love building trails because it keeps me outside. It keeps me working on crews. So I just was like, all right, I think I need the next big thing. I want to push myself even further. Um, and I saw an outside magazine and it had, it, um, it was, I did a huge piece on a hotshot crew and I was just like, I was like, that's it. That's what I'll be doing next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just look up in the sky and see a helicopter. You're like, oh, that's me. That's what. I'm yeah, doing. <laughs> yeah. It was like literally. It was. I'm like sitting in the trail, the trails cabin, and just like it was an outside magazine, just laying there, and I opened it up, and because I was like, I always was attracted to like the military, but I would never could kill someone on someone else's word you know what i mean like there's a lot of things i disagreed with our military about but i always was like the idea of that challenge like the physical challenge um so when i found fire i was like oh yeah plus it's seasonal i was like oh this is like trail crew with a paycheck i'm into it (laughs) (laughs) so what was your strategy to to getting that job Uh, well and then as a reminder i went like there was a france kind of uh split my fourth and fifth season of trail crew but that's the france is a whole different ball game that was not uh well i don't know we can go back to france um because it does go a little more linear if you just think because france was like a, a dabble but trail crew and hot chatting was more like career thinking um so sorry what was your question again what was your strategy going from trail crew to the hot shot firefighting how did you oh oh my god um so i knew one person who worked who did our trail crew and worked as a wildland firefighter um i overlapped with him he's a really wonderful man um and i so i reached out to him and was like can you help me figure out how to get into this world so federal jobs are such an enigma if you are doing it by yourself. Like none of the ratings make sense. You go on USA jobs and everything's thrown out the window that you're supposed to, that you're supposed to like do like in the real world, you're like uh, a one page resume to the, for federal jobs. It's like, you need to do like a 14 page resume. You need to be like, I one time tied my shoes. Like you have to say every single thing you've done in your entire fucking life. Anyway. Um, so I reached out to a bunch of people. Uh, I knew one person who was, no, I knew reached out to him. He kind of told me the, the jargon to look for, for jobs to apply to. But what was challenging is that I didn't have any of the training under my belt. And most crews will only hire you if you have like a couple of cert- these, like a certification called a red card, which means you're allowed to be, you're allowed to fight fires. Cause it's really expensive to send you to go get red carded. So most districts prefer you're already red carded. So my response to that was to apply to every single fire job I ever saw. Like just, I like just canvassed USA jobs. I probably applied to like hundreds, hundreds of fire jobs. And, um, shotgun you know, approach. Yeah, exactly. That was exactly it. And then, but the other thing is, is that these people out West, like 
they are living in those districts. So they get those jobs before someone from like, and most of those people out West hiring don't know what the hell a professional trail crew is. Like out West, all that stuff is done federally. Um, and the whole scope of what building trails is, is completely different out West. Um, so they didn't understand like the quality and the work that I'd been doing and what, like what my trail crew experience actually meant. So it was a hustle. So my first season I got on as, um, as most people do, just like the lowest rated GS3 um, for a for a Type 6 engine, which is a, the smallest wildland fire engine um, in Zortman, Montana, population 46 in central Montana for the Bureau of Land Management, and um, proceeded to spend some of the six hardest months of my life in the fucking prairie, uh, which I've never been to, which was very unsettling, um, <laughs> with like nine other people in the prairie in the town of population 46, uh, I think 55 miles from a grocery store and about three hours from the closest like coffee shop. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, it was remote. Um, it was intense. It was a very good learning experience. Um, it was also a dead fire season. So, um, but my whole point to get on to that type six engine, I was like, I don't want to be an engine. I don't want to work on an engine. I want to get on a hot shot crew, but to get on a hot shot crew, I needed my qualifications and I needed like people to speak on my behalf. So before I got on my engine crew, I was in France for the winter and I was just PTing my ass off, just working out, just Pat, like weighted packs, sprinting up and down huge staircases, just, you know, seven days a week or six days a week, two days of a hiking workouts, two days long distance running workouts and two days of high intensity circuit workouts. Um, and I got there and you have to do this pack test, which is 45 pounds on your back and like walk. And then you have to do like a hike, but it's on flat ground. And I was like psyching myself up for that. I was like, oh shit, oh shit. And then I got there and I fucking was, I like killed it. Cause a lot of people in fire don't take the pack test seriously, which is accurate. Like it's silly. When do you ever hike on flat, normal ground and fire? It doesn't really make sense. Um, but yeah, so my whole mentality, that whole dead season was just to be the best at everything, volunteer for everything, stay in the best shape I possibly could so that when I applied to Hotshot Crews and they called my supervisors, um, they could then my supervisors could be like, oh, Maddie? Yeah, she was like unstoppable all season. Like it, we had a dead season and she still was in the gym PTing her ass off. She like, you give her, you tell her to wash the toilets. Those toilets are like the cleanest toilets you ever see in your life. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, anything. like get her out of here. She's making us look like lazy bums. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like an engine life is very different and all, all districts differ. So it just depends. But engine life is a lot more of like a slow going. It's a lot of like a career life like a running and gunning 25 year old is is meant for engine life um but it was cool because and then the whole time i just tried to network as much as possible just like whenever we're on trainings or on a different district doing work um like cutting or doing prescribed fires i would find anyone who had a hotshot background and just talk to them and ask them their advice and just kind of because the hotshotting world's small so just like i have a low voice i'm a charismatic lady with a weird philly jersey accent like i could people I'm a little bit memorable to people. So, so I was like, I, you know, I just want to talk to every single person and hopefully if they get a call about me, they remember me and can be like, so like the few fires that we did get on, I like busted my ass. I just like worked overtime really hard and I tried to keep a good attitude. It can be low. 
there can be low times on fire se- any fire season. So there were some times where I got a little grumpy and cranky, uh, felt a little in- more entitled than I should have. But for the most part, I'm actually really proud of myself to how focused I stayed on on becoming a hotshot. Like that was it. That was supposed to be my career. Um, so yeah, so that was season one, and then. Um, I went back to France again for the winter because I was dating someone over there and spent all winter in the, a public library in France um, emailing every hotshot crew. I wanted to work in the Southwest because they had the longest fire seasons. Um, and yeah, pretty much just like emailing every hotshot crew, just being like, yo, you, like, I'm not even gonna lie, like, you want to hire me. Like, this is all I want. I'm like vicious for this job. I'm gonna bust my ass. Like, like this is it. And I ended up getting a getting a gig in New Mexico um, and hot shotting there for two seasons, which was a really powerful experience. How did you end up getting uh, the red card that you needed? Um, so, so some districts will hire people without red cards. Um, and that's just what I just got on. Um, so, you know, like I said, I applied to like hundreds of jobs and I got like three responses. <laughs> um, so that's how like people aren't the most stoked on hiring people without red cards, but Sortman Montana was one of them. <laughs> yeah. So they just send you to training because, um, in wildland fire, there's always called the, there's like the, um, critical, two weeks so the first two weeks um you're not up there like you're not put up you're not available to respond to fires and it's when the whole district or your crew gets um recertified and all this a lot of like certifications are only a year and stuff like that so you have to take refresher courses and stuff so it's just a bunch of sitting around in a engine bay looking at powerpoints um and then just like working out a lot and then they send the rookies off to um this like little um red card <laughs> um training camp um which was in livingston montana which is way nicer than <laughs> than zorgman um right because it's right by yellowstone and you go over there and you just get to get the basics and get your red card so then you got on the the hot shot and how was that season Oh, hot shotting was my first season of hot shotting was I was just so stoked to be there. Um, it was good. You know, hot chatting is, is, um, I liked the work of hot chatting was everything I wanted it to be just like running and gunning hot shots are national resource. So you respond to all the biggest fires around the country. You're not stuck just to your district. Um, you're put into the most complex complex parts of the fire and you're given the best jobs on a fire like when wildland fire but like when there's a wildland fire there's a lot of shitty boring jobs to do that are very important um like just literally sitting and watching is like a lot of what wildland fire like what there needs to be happening on fires um but when you're a hot shot if there's an exciting job to do you get it which actually it gets a lot of uh yeah, so there's a lot of people in fire can have uh, talk a lot of smack on hot shots too, um, and there's some just reasons for that. But there's also a little bit, I think, just like a bitterness because you're about to go like put some fire on the ground, like light off, uh, which is like one of the most fun things to do. Which is like when you when you're applying fire to the forest, right? On um, like that old phrase, fight fire with fire, and like you're about to go do it, and then all of a sudden the hot shot crew rolls in and like operations is like sorry you guys are gonna hand off your torches to the hot shot crew and you're just gonna stand back and watch them do the fun stuff <laughs> oh no so, yeah so no but hot shotting was sweet i mean you like live you it's serious and um 
it's there's very much a seriousness within all wildland fire but particularly on my hotshot crew my superiors were very serious about the fact that you know this is a job where you very easily could die and you study in wildland fire during those critical two weeks you study fatality fires in depth and like what it took why these people died and my first season was the season after um the granite mountain hotshots were entirely killed so well except for one person so 19 hotshots an entire almost an entire crew was burnt over and killed so it was it was what I wanted in intensity I was like I do want this level of serious seriousness in my life I do want to have to like be dialed like I want to know I want to know that I am able to be so focused and committed that I am okay with taking these risks um, and I also, and that speaks a lot to my superiors, my, my, my foreman and my superintendent, particularly, they were phenomenal superiors in that they really like our lives, like they're in charge of 20 lives, you know what I mean? In an extremely dangerous situation. And even if something random, like a tree falls and kills someone, that is still on them and they have to like sleep at night. You know what I mean? So they were, it was intense and it was real and it was incredible. Like there is nothing like watching hundreds of thousands of acres explode into flames and having to like RTO, which is reverse tool order, you know, and get to a safety zone because there's nothing you can do either. Um, like there's nothing that makes you feel more alive and more like in awe of nature and just like, yeah, you feel so small at the same and just like in like a real, in like a good way. Like you don't feel like demeaned. You just feel like, you know what? Yeah, fuck me. <laughs> like, I'm, like, I, I'm not shit compared to like nature. You know what I mean? And yeah, yeah. So hot chatting was, was powerful. The, the crew element was um, a lot different than trail crew, which um, in, in not necessarily a positive way, I felt that the... There was a lot of grumpiness um, that, and a bit of entitlement that I think was was hard for me to deal with coming from a place where I wasn't getting paid a lot on trail crew, but then working overtime just because my like just because it was important. Um, and I think that a lot of that entitlement came from uh, some of the younger folk who had never actually had their asses kicked. So this, so hot shouting was like actually their real first time getting their asses kicked and they were uncomfortable and they were dudes. And the way a lot of men respond to discomfort is um, by being angry at it. Um, and it was funny because you could really tell the difference when there were three to four women on the crew when I was on it. Um, one, I say two, four, cause she, she only did like part of seasons cause she was a student. Um, but it's funny because and I've seen this on trail crew. I've seen this on fire. Again, that's eight seasons under my belt, male dominated worlds. And there's just no, the amount of complaining I've heard men do in the face of adversity, like is so incredible compared to a woman, because honestly, like every woman out there is literally representing all women. Um, because when you're in a male dominated field, if you fuck up, they will not hire women and they will say act like it's justified because well we one time had this one woman and she fucked up you know so there is a whole lot less complaining <laughs> yeah and that affects them down the line unfortunately yeah exactly so 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 hot shouting the i always say the work was it for me the work made me feel complete the work was hard the work sucked sometimes it's 
miserable and hot and shitty. Um, like, cause it's not always like running and gunning. Like when you're mopping up, that's after the fire is contained. So there's less, not really much of a threat of it going anywhere else. So that means you start cooling it down. Um, you're literally like squatting and touching the ground for 16 hour days just to make sure it's called a cold trailing, just to make sure the ground is not hot. Um, so there are long, shitty, not exciting days. Um, but yeah, the hot chatting, the work was what I wanted. I would say that um, the the crew was, the crew aspect really got to me by the end of it. Take me through. But, oh, sorry, when, go ahead. Uh, take me through a particular day while you were hot shotting, like wake up to falling asleep. Oh, uh, like when I was on a fire? Uh, whenever, when any, any day that comes to mind is, uh, particularly descriptive of like the job and what it entailed. All right. So then I'll give you one when you're at base and one when you're at fire. How does that sound? Great. So on base, our base is incredible. It was, it's one of the most, it's the most remote, most remote hotshot base in the lower 48. Um, so we're on the edge of the Gila wilderness is just phenomenal. So anyway, you wake up. Um, I forget, was it like 7 a.m.? You live on base in barracks. Um, there's a women's barracks and then men's barracks. Um, you wake up and you and you go out and you PT with your squad, so you do training with your squad. Um, so you work out, so each squad has their own workouts. Um, and you work out for an hour. You generally, um, in the beginning of the season, you're working out really hard because you want to be in shape for the season. Um, so you do some sort of like, there's always, it's a lot of circuit workouts and running really hard up hills. <laughs> um, so you pretty much bust your ass. You work out as hard as you possibly can every time you do a PT. And then you get back to barracks and then you have an hour off to shower up and eat breakfast. And then you go, we meet, um, on the porch, they called it, and you're briefed for the day. So if we're not on a fire, you're normally doing work for the forest service, um, which a lot of times is chainsaw work. So thinning forests. Um, so you have your bag packed. Everything is always ready for us to get a fire call. Um, so the buggies are all loaded up. There's the trucks we roll in. And then you head out to the day and you work an eight hour shift when you're, when there's no fire. So, and you're just sawing all day take half hour lunch break and then start up your chainsaw again and sawing all day again. Um, come back to base and kind of just fuck off because you have all, it's like five o'clock and, and you're in the middle of the wilderness. So <laughs> it's like a lot of just like hang out with each other. There was no Wi-Fi or anything. So um, just good old fashioned fun generally. No drinking as long as it was fire season because um, you could get called to a fire at any moment. Um, so a lot of horseshoes, a lot of board games, <laughs> and normally I would, and a lot of us would just do a second workout, um, in the evening. Anyway, so then that's a normal at base day, um, a normal on the fire. So when you're hot shot, once fire season's kicking, normally you go, you go out for 14 to 21 day rolls, they're called. And then you come back, you have a mandatory two days off, um, where you cannot get called on a fire. Normally everyone's just like like pieces out for two straight days you come back and when fire season's kicking you're just back on a fire you're back on the buggy like the second you're up and available again so you means you're rolling out to idaho you're rolling out to southern california you're rolling out to nevada like wherever the fire is so then on a fire like um there's you generally work a 16 hour shift on a fire so um you're up around like five 
um, you get on a cruise differ. Hotshot crews are a little bit more hardcore. So generally we, you wake up, you have five to 10 minutes to get changed into your gear, your yellows and greens, roll up your, roll up all your sleeping stuff, have it in and ready, be ready to roll on the buggy. So from wake up to sitting in your seat in the buggy is five to 10 minutes. Um, you get, if you're at fire camp, you go, you get breakfast and then you hop in the buggy and head out to the line. The line is where the fire is. Um, and then you're either digging line, direct line, which is the exciting stuff, which is the, the fire. You're next to the fire. Got one foot in the black is what it's called. And you're actively digging. Um, I was a Pulaski, so I was up front. Um, you're digging and you pretty much dig for 16 hours. Uh, there's not like actual lunch breaks when you're fighting an active fire um so a lot of times you have snack pockets <laughs> you you reach into your pocket as you're digging you shove something into your mouth and then you keep digging i mean i can't really emphasize the fact that you are swinging a tool uh there are days when you're swinging a tool for 16 hours and when it's a real hot fire there can be days when you're swinging a tool for over 16 hours um and then if you're not sleeping on the line um you normally around dusk in the evening um if there's a safe time to escape you get out and hop on the buggy head to fire camp there's like a base and you can get food there hot meal there and then you go back to the buggy and it's around 10 p.m you roll out your sleeping bag on the ground you normally there's no setting up tents or anything normally because it's dry um you just roll your sleeping bag on the ground take off your outfit get your sleep bag pass out repeat for 14 days <laughs> you would be right next to the fire. Like how, how hard was that to just to be swinging this tool for 16 hours while there's a raging fire, like right in your face. I mean, it's sweet. <laughs> it's so hard and it's so, but you're in it with your crew. You know what I mean? Like that's when all the bullshit died away. Like busy fire seasons, people are making money and you're busy. So there's a lot less grumpiness. Um, it is so hard. I mean, uh, there will never be so some I just remember my um squad lead who was my direct supervisor. I dug right next to him and I remember this was some of the biggest this was actually a small it was an initial initial attack fire. So it was actually a smaller fire, but that the flames were just as big as a fire, you know what I mean? And I just they were the flames were sucking the oxygen out of the air as we were trying to get our line around it. And I remember Tyler turning to me and yelling down the line, if you have to puke, that's fine. Just keep swinging your tool. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, it's just adrenaline. And then, but then like 16 hours, yeah, you, the adrenaline goes. But I always say, and this was the same for trail crew, like, you, my favorite days are the long days. The short days, there's an end in sight. And you start feeling entitled to stopping. But there's a level of insanity. There's just a level that you reach where there's just no going back. And, you know, I've recently found it. I did a big through hike recently, and I found it through hiking recently. And, it, and that's just, like, where I really find myself, like, my true self. And it's just that 
there is exhaustion doesn't even hit your mind anymore. Like you are just, you are your tool and you're just swinging it. And there, I'm not even worried about when it's going to end because guess what? It's going to fucking end. But guess what's way more important? Like that we get our fucking line around this fire because my safety relies on that. My crew safety relies on that. This community's safety relies on that. You know what I mean? And it's just like, it's just like the best. Like those are the best days. (laughs) The worst days are like the slow days. Yeah, I, that's a good point. When when you can see the end, it's like okay, it's it's gonna be it's it's almost here. It's almost here. We can we can get there. But when there's no end in sight, it's just like keep going, nonstop. Yeah, don't stop. Yeah, exactly. People start like hooting, and hollering. Like it's so fun. Like you like people start. Everyone starts losing it, and you want to get each other hyped up. You know what I mean? And like it's just like people are just start like hollering. And I mean, you'd be it's. Hours, right? So even in like the hot, like in hot situations, there's still some pretty wacky conversation that can happen or comments. Ha- well, the conversation, yeah, conversations are yeah, the conversations aren't really happening because you have to breathe. But like comments happening and weird things coming up, you know, anything that happens with people in the woods, no matter what you're doing, weirdness happens. <laughs> you you mentioned the sort of the group dynamic becoming problematic. What what was the the end of the hotshot crew for you and then transferring to the next thing. What did that look like? Yeah. I ended hotshotting pretty upset with it and pretty disappointed. I ended fire pretty disappointed. I was really excited for fire to be my career. I really saw myself in fire and that was it. Like I was like, Oh, cool. Like this is going to be it. And I'm going to like have this cool job and be this extreme lady and continue to be like, like, who the fuck are you? You know what I mean? And like carry myself in a way, like with a lot of, like, it just, I thought fire was going to be it. And, um, uh, I mean, it's no secret that wildland fire, particularly wildland fire is one of the most sexist and hostile women work environments that exists. Um, the guardian did an expose on it like two years ago, New York times there's has done exposés on it. There's been now documentaries. I think one woman just won a major, um, reporting award on it um wildland fire has a major 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 sexism uh issue um it's anything from the fact that implicit bias that everyone has on all parts of our like work community and like civilization right now which is just that like you don't even realize you're being sexist right even women right have like internalized sexism um so anything from as mild and as innocuous well no that's not innocuous pardon me but anything from as like ubiquitous as that but um to downright uh sexual assault attempted sexual assault um and not dealing with sexual assault. Um, so recently, I think it was uh, last year, the Forest Service, because they got called out by all these news outlets, like it has started trying to respond effectively to things, but they hadn't before. And um, I had experiences and women on my crew had really negative experiences. And when we tried to report those experiences, I was told, well, nothing happened. So I guess it's fine. And I was like, well, nothing happened because I had to fight. (laughs) So I needed to get assaulted in order for anything to have happened. Um, and, and the person was a superior of mine, you know, and, and that superior of mine, when I said what happened to me to him when I was in the women's barracks, my 
fellow, another woman said that she had to like get out of a sticky situation with the same guy. And that guy recently got like a promotion, you know, like he's not at that crew anymore. He left and he was terrible at his job. Um, But he, so I was just like, so I just found myself really, really pissed. Um, And just being like, yo, listen, like I am good at my job. I'm not the best, right? I was still a fucking rookie. Like, anyone listening to this that has any hotshot experience is like, girl, you were only there for two seasons. You're no fucking, like, I still a greenhorn, and I'm not acting like I wasn't. But um, I had, I had, and I still do have a really good work ethic, and I'm confident in that work ethic, and I'm confident in myself. And I was like, you know what? I can do other jobs. Like, there are places where I won't get sexually harassed, or there are places where... Uh, or, yeah, and there are places where I won't be overlooked um, because of my gender. Um, and I think maybe I'll just fucking do that because I don't want to swim upstream anymore. And I remember the day that I decided I wasn't going to come back to fire. It felt like I didn't even know, but like my, there's just like a ton of bricks lifted off of my shoulders. And I just like didn't even know that was there holding me down. And yeah, and it was just, yeah, it's just like every single woman I knew in fire experienced some sort of outright sexual harassment, like outright. So I'm not saying like, like, oh, I'm not sure. It just maybe I misread it. No, like fucking outright sexual harassment by superiors. Like, so like it was everywhere and terrible. So yeah, so I left and I was extremely sad. It was a huge part of my identity that I was like, you heard what I did to get into that career, like how hard I worked and, and then to leave so shortly after and to be so let down by it and to have loved the work. Like the work itself was so fun and cool and fulfilling and pushed me. Yeah. So it sucked. It totally sucked leaving it. Um, but it was, what I had to do. And I still wrestle with it a lot. I still, still wrestle with it so much. Like, should I have just stayed? Should I have been one of those who stay? Cause you know what? The women who stay are making those changes and, and the changes that need to happen. And they're working really hard and I salute them every day. And sometimes I wonder if I was just like a quitter. So yeah, <laughs> it's pretty emotional actually. Do you have a lot of hope for the industry to turn it around? Oh, it's going to take a fucking lot, but I think it's, I think anything's possible. Um, but it's going to take a lot. There is just a such old boy mentality in the forest service the and the park service and the Bureau of land management. And it's not only left to fire. Um, the old boy mentality is there and they're trying to make active changes like quotas and promoting women. And unfortunately what happens with that is a lot of bitterness goes towards women who are promoted during these times because then it's like well you just got promoted because you're a woman and it's like well that's actually probably not fucking true but maybe i wouldn't have gotten promoted because i'm a woman but things have changed now um so i hope i think times are changing uh it's just going to take a lot of time i think as we speak more and more openly about it it has to change and that's why i'm not it still makes me a little uncomfortable to like talk about my crew like that um because there's an element where we were like in it together and like almost dying together so it makes me uncomfortable like kind of putting them on blast but at the same time like if no one talks about it nothing's going to change you know so i think that because it's being talked about more often because women are less willing to take shit in all places um i i hope 
I have hope that it will change it because the women who are there are fighting the good fight and are actually being listened to more and more now. I do, I do see, think that there will be change. I just think that it's going to take uh, pretty much for an entire generation to phase out. Um, which the good news is, is the federal government has a great retirement age, so they'll phase out pretty young. <laughs> Well, tell me a little bit about your off seasons. You mentioned France and then I know you did a little traveling as well when you were hot shotting, but so start with the trail crew. What what was your off season like? Well, when I started trail crew, I was still in college, right? So my off season was college. And then, um, and then I would travel every winter break to college, like Central America and like Europe and stuff, just get my toes dipped in international travel, you know, here and there for three weeks. Um, and then after my fourth season of Joker, that was when I, I moved to France because my goal was to always live in a foreign country. And I applied. I did not want to go to France. Like I was trying, I applied to jobs everywhere. At this time, like at that time when I was applying to jobs, like I was applying to jobs in Syria, I was applying to jobs in like Africa, Central America. And I literally like offhandedly applied to one job as a fucking nanny in Paris and I was about to head back into the woods into trail crew. So I needed to get all my paperwork like done. So I was like waiting to hear back and the France job came through and I was like, well, fucking hell, like woods Maddie is heading to Paris. <laughs> so, um, I went to trail crew and then finished the summer season and went literally from being like this woods animal <laughs> to flying to Paris like two weeks after the end of the season and being an au pair for this super rich family in Paris, which au pair is a live-in nanny, um, later found out is like the equivalent to a Harry Potter, like house elf. Like, um, it was pretty, it was, it was pretty terrible, but it was awesome. Um, it was great. Like, it was, yeah. So then I moved to Paris and was a nanny for like six months there. And that was like a thing. I don't know. I don't really like dwell on it, but, um, and then I kind of, they the family fortunately because they were terrible the family the dad got a job transfer so they were leaving the country so they were like but i had this year-long visa and i was like they were like all right well like sorry you don't have a job and i was like no problem so i got a job bartending so i bartended when i was living in paris for a little bit lived in like this yeah and then um I just didn't like Paris. Uh, it's hard to crack in with a crowd in Paris. The guy, people I bartended with were really fun and like silly, but it just like was, I didn't like it. I don't like cities. It was dark. It was raining. It was cold. I got, I found that website Workaway, um, which is like woofing, you know, I found a place in the South of France in the Pyrenees and they needed some help with like they're developing their property. They were completely off the grid property, rebuilding these like ancient homesteads and stuff. Um, so I was like, all right, I'm coming to you. And I also had like 400 American dollars and I had, and I had no ticket home and a visa for like six more months. So I was like, <laughs> I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to go hole up in the Pyrenees. So I went there and, had, and it was a really cool experience. I lived with this, a couple, this Dutch couple in the south of France, and worked um, with some traditional, doing some traditional masonry, which is cool because I had that experience doing like dry stone masonry in the trails. Um, so doing a lot of really cool masonry work, and then like just seeing the Pyrenees are phenomenal. That's still where my heart is. I'm going back to the Pyrenees like this summer. Um, I threw hiked the Pyrenees like two years ago from the Atlantic to the Mediterranean. I love it so much. They're so gorgeous. So um, just like had a lot of fun. Like built some retaining walls there like trail crew style and like lived there I think for four months um because I had no money to go anywhere else (laughs) 
yeah and then like i met a, i met a person over there and uh, a french person so i ended up like kind of keeping up contact and then i would from france like go fight fire and then go back to france and then in the off season and then fought fire and then yeah and then i hot shotted left french person and yeah, and my off-seeds of hot-shotting were fucking sweet because I actually had money. Like, hot-shotting pays. Um, so you have six months off and, like, a year a year paycheck, essentially. So myself and my partner at the time, we t- did a ton of, like, I had not traveled domestically at all, and he had lived in the Southwest for, like, years. So we did a shit ton of just, like, sick northern Arizona, southern Utah backpacking like crazy and then road trips galore like six months off with like money is a lot you know and then we did a and then i think in the same year we did a belize cuba we did cuba mexico and belize um trip but my friends live have a piece of my friends from trail crew have a piece of property in belize so they have like this jungle camp uh it's just like this total just piece of jungle that we sling up hammocks and chop around and plant plants and i don't know just kind of freedomville belize <laughs> like just kind of do whatever you want and hang out with belizeans um just a lot of just like backpacking and working out though like when you're hot shotting ton of working out and then so like anywhere we went was exercise like whether we were running through the streets of cuba or built a gym in the jungle um getting chased by wild dogs in the Belize jungle. <laughs> Rastas coming out of their like cute little jungle homes on these dirt roads, being like so confused, just seeing like these two white ass motherfuckers like on a jog. They're like, what is going on? Um <laughs> and using cinder blocks for like weights. Um and then after my second after my final season of hot chatting, we did my partner at the time and I did this through hike um, from, it's called the GR 10 and it's from the Atlantic to the Mediterranean. It's 540 miles. And it was through the Pyrenees, across the Pyrenees. It's on the French Spanish border um, for all the listeners out there. I do not recommend it. It was amazing and beautiful, but um, it wasn't wild, but what it was was the some of the hardest hiking I've ever done. It was perpendicular to the mountain range for 540 miles. So you are literally summiting, descending, and then resummiting a mountain every fucking day. And the mountains just get bigger and bigger as you get to the middle. <laughs> that seems uh that seems a little it, wild. It was insane. And it was 38 days, 38 days of hiking. And I think we took two zeros the whole time because it was also October and November. Oh my God. It was because we had a hot shot season. So like we couldn't do it in peak season. So it was like cold and we packed all of like, so yeah, it was, but it was phenomenal. I highly recommend doing like through hikes in in Europe, Western Europe. They're pretty cool. Um, and they're more cultural experiences than wilderness experiences. Um, but but uh, yeah, they don't fuck around. Uh, a lot of just like shepherd's paths. They don't have like trail crews. <laughs> um, so yeah, my off seasons were literally just like visiting family, seeing any friend I wanted to, um, and tr- going wherever I wanted to do in the world because I had fine amount of money. <laughs> what was the process of learning French like for you? Uh, hilarious. I didn't speak any French when I went to France and, but my goal was to learn a foreign language no matter where I moved. So I just dove 
head first into French. Um, the au pair network in Paris is very big. I know quite a few of my friends actually never learned French because you could get away with just hanging out with Anglophones. But myself and the au pair across the street from me, we really want to learn French. So we would just like dive in head first and speak as little friends and shitty French and have French people get annoyed with us all the time and just like bust my ass and to learn. And then um, I met the per- the French person I ended up dating and we spent a lot of time on the phone together and they didn't speak any English. So the onus was on me to speak French. So they always, like, it's always said like learning a foreign language is easiest if you are dating somebody. So um, I, most of my French, like, honestly, most of the French I learned was over the phone. And at the bar, pardon, and at the bar. Like, when I was a bartender, I learned a shit ton of French. But what's funny, because the French I learned was, like, bar French. And the person I was dating was, like, kind of, like, he didn't speak very formal French. He spoke a lot of slang French. So, even to this day, like, I definitely have an American accent when I speak French. Like, I'm not, I don't sound like a native French speaker. So, it's really funny, like, when I'm hanging out with French people in Quebec, because right, I'm right by Quebec in, in Vermont, they're always, like, you're, if I'm talking to anyone, like, for any extended period of time in French, they're always like, your French is hilarious. Like, you have, like, this accent, but then you, like, also kind of, like, spit, like, a bunch of slang. And I'm like, oh, that's because I don't really know what's slang and what's not slang. <laughs> Just using the tools I've got. <laughs> exactly. Like one time at dinner with uh, the person I was dating's family, his, his grandma was like this very formal, like a French woman. And she was like, oh, do you want, like she asked me if I, I don't know, wanted like the pepper or some shit. And I like literally was like, I was like, ah, je m'en fous. And like je m'en fous, I, someone told me that that meant I, like I don't really care. Um, like, I, like, I don't mind, like, I don't need it type of thing is what my intent was. Um, and her face just dropped and I was like, uh, I definitely said something wrong and I don't know what it was. And then like later I like went to the, my, my person and they were like, um, <laughs> je m'en fous means I don't give a shit. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> so yeah, moments like that, which is hilarious. Cause when I got hired as a French teacher, I was like, uh, I gotta buckle down on like actual real French, um, which is what I've done over the past three years. I've, I've pretty much just educated myself, uh, gone to spend a lot of time in Quebec, France, and um, listen to like a French podcast every morning, read a French novel almost every night. So a lot. And then in my classroom, I speak French almost the entire time. So uh, I've been learning a lot <laughs> on the job too. <laughs> What's some of the actionable advice you give to your students now when they tell you, like the girl that's like, I could be a helicopter pilot or somebody, one of your students that's like, I want, I want to go into something seasonal. What's some actionable advice that you find yourself giving them? Okay. So, you know, that's a hard question to answer because, well, the helicopter pilot is different, but like seasonal work is an enigma to people. You know what I mean? So like, that's not something a student whatever say because they don't even know it exists and then when you try to explain it to them they're like that doesn't make sense because that's not college or that's not just getting a job like where i live not like not all kids are going to college it's not a reality um so like it's just like well that doesn't make sense you know what i mean um 
So trying to sell seasonal work is hard. I mean, I'm sure you know and your listeners know, like we have a hard enough time trying to explain it to our families. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was about this woman be like, I was telling her, I was like, well, I'm a seasonal worker. You know, I like, depending about the season, I do different jobs. She's like, so you're a migrant laborer? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I guess. I feel like it's a little different, <laughs> but okay. Um, my biggest message though, that I try to instill uh, with with my students is that the world is big, life is long, and there are so many options. So before you just think that you're going to major in this or do that, just like get out there and try everything. Like, and some of the stuff is going to suck and you're going to be miserable. Like, I never sugarcoat that. I'm like, like my time as an au pair in Paris was horrible. <laughs> and I'm like so grateful for it. Part of my seasons on fire, a lot of my seasons in fire were really low times for me. Like really sad, hard times for me. I'm not saying that my whole fucking life has been like rainbows and like amazing. Like most of my adult life has been kind of terrifying. <laughs> you know? um, and not because like I was not because I was afraid of dying in a fire, like terrifying because I was like, I have no idea what what I'm doing. Like I am hitchhiking and I might get like I'm running away from a man right now. <laughs> you know, so it's like, but like what I always what I want to sell it, like it's just that yeah, life is long. Like the world is so many options, and like don't just pigeonhole yourself because like oh it's the best advice I ever got. One time I was serving coffee to this woman when I was my college job was at Starbucks and I was serving college to this woman who was going but she was getting her graduate degree and she was like in her 40s or something like late 40s she's like a business lady she's like well what are you gonna do and I was like but I was kind of rattling all of these things off and I was like I don't really know and I'm kind of freaking out and she just like and I was like kind of just want to keep traveling and like work seasonally she just like looked at me and she's like hey the 40 hour work week will always be there and I was just like, oh my God, like it changed everything, that perspective changed everything for me. So yeah, so I'm just like, I just, it's more trying to talk young people off the cliff of having to like walk the line and do what everyone else is telling them to do because everyone else was afraid to take those risks, you know, and to do the cool things and to like try the scary things. So yeah, my minds were just like, so which is why I created my class. Like you need to meet these women who like, were just like you, but then decided to take these risks and it led them down these like amazing paths, you know, where they found themselves and they tried new things and they had confidence in themselves. What's an experience that you've had that you think everyone should have, whether that's like a single day or a view you've seen or something you've gone through? I just wish everyone could be put in a situation where they have no other option. No one understands how truly strong, or very few people like really get how strong and capable they are. And when you're in a situation where you can't back out, you just have to be strong. And yeah. And that's, that's why I think the woods are really important. That's like, why I started my outing club. Like I just want to get kids uncomfortable with a backpack on their back and they can't, there is no turning back. There is no one to help you, but yourself, you know? Yeah. Throw themselves in a situation where it's, you know, sink or swim and you're almost always going to swim. Yeah, absolutely. And learn, learn that about yourself. 
Yes, absolutely. What is a lesson that you learned growing up in Philadelphia that you that you use in your adult life now? <laughs> oh man. That's such a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um you know <laughs> so like People from Philly, Jersey, we're, uh, we're known for being like shit talkers. You know what I mean? And not everyone knows how to take us. Um, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> are you from there? Where are you from? No, no. But my, I'm from uh, small town, Ohio. But I, oh, wow. a couple of my friends from Philly, I, I know sort of the, the stereotype of Philly. And <laughs> I've, I've seen a lot of hashtag Philly shit firsthand. So. <laughs> I didn't know there was a hashtag. Now I need to find that. Okay, good to know. Um, I guess the thing that Philly did to me was it made me. I love, really- <laughs> I love the way you put it. What <laughs> Philly did to me, what I survived in Philly. Yeah. Well, it's just that, like, fucking call shit out. Like, call shit out. Like, call it like you see them. So often, like, all you have to do is be the one to say it. And it's like everyone else, people just start coming out of the woodwork, like agreeing with you and just being so relieved that somebody said it. (laughs) You know what I mean? And like in Philly, you don't have to do that as much because everyone's doing that. You know what I mean? But like when you're in other parts of the country, it's a steep learning curve for us as like little baby Philadelphians. We go elsewhere. It's so hard to make friends because like our form of affection is talking shit. And then you Midwesterners are like, what the fuck? This person is just a dick. And you're like, no, that means I love you. You know? (laughs) Um, But so like there's a steep learning curve. But like I do know, especially as I get older and more confident in myself and like confident in my decision making and speaking up for myself i'm just like you don't know like i can't like i call shit out anyway so i might as well be confident and proud of the fact that you know i'm just gonna be a fucking whistleblower and like i'm gonna call shit out and like as long as i feel that it's true and i feel that it's done for good purpose right like fucking i'm doing it you know so yeah that's what that's what the jerseydelphia is what i call it because i grew up in some new suburban new jersey but then like high school and lived in philly college and stuff so yeah like the the that's the the philly way it's like call some shit out like do not stand for bullshit just happening yeah get rid of that sort of like social pressure to make everything okay or happy (laughs) like once shit goes down somebody say something yeah. Oh my God. It's absurd. And I've like, and you know, it sucks sometimes being the person that calls shit out. It really does because you like, there's a lot of times no one says something publicly, but that comes to you later to support you. And you're like, okay, well fuck you. And now I'm just like on a shit list and, and like no one supported me. So there's no change happening. You know what I mean? But yeah, yeah, yep, it is. Yep. It's just what has to happen. I like. It's not like I can stop myself from doing it anyway. So now I'm just embracing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, is there anything that we didn't get to that you you'd like to? No, you fucking, you fucking went through my life with a fine tooth comb, there, Joey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a blast. Yeah, you're a great storyteller. Thanks. That's good to know. Yeah, you guys are. When Kelly asked me to like help out with an article, I felt like I really owed you guys one because she said you guys sent me so many of these really amazing. Your guys' publication is beautiful, by the way. Um, Thank you. 
And, and I was just like, oh man. And she's like, if you'd like to write an article. And I'm like, oh my God, first of all, work is a shit show. And second of all, like I just, that feels so out of my element. And then she like passively was like, we have a podcast, but some people find that intimidating. I'm like, oh man, no way. I'm like all about chatting. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, but yeah, you guys, I love what you guys are doing. Your publication is beautiful. I've been um, dropping it in students' hands all the time during study hall when they're just fucking up on their phones. Um, I'm always like, I dare you to look at this for five minutes and not your phone. So I'm hoping I'm just going to like spark, you know, one person, one kid to just think about it a little bit, you know? So, so you guys, your guys stuff is going into the right hands. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. And yeah, if they want to contact us for like anything, we're, we're always open to help whoever uh, that's good to know us. and i i kind of already sold you guys i figured you guys kind of would be open so i already told them that too <laughs> great perfect yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah thank you so much i feel really honored to even be like uh talk to on this podcast so thank you so much yeah well you have an awesome life and you're doing really cool stuff now with your <laughs> class as well so thanks that means a lot yeah. That's it. That's the episode. The seasonals are Kelly Mogg, Ryan Deininger, me, Joey Ravinsky. The theme song by Ryan Deininger, Joe Williams, Louis Leva, Chappie, Thomas Hamilton. Follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore. Like us on Facebook. Listen to our next episode. That's it. We're out. Yeah.